Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I'm really thrilled to be joined by my colleague, David Ainsworth, who is the business editor here at DevX. Hey, David. Hey, Raj. Hey, Dan. Good to be with you. And uh, Nicole Golden is our special guest this week, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Raj. Great to be with you. Hey, David. Yeah, nice to be with you both. So, not surprisingly, one of the themes we talk about often on this show is back in the headlines this week, and that is localization and decolonization. So I think we're going to spend you know, most of our time today just talking through those issues. And obviously, it's something you know so well, Nicole. I don't even know how to get into your background because you had so many hats over the years, but you've worked at the World Bank and at UNICEF. And, and you're well known in the USAID world for having helped to author the, the very first youth and development policy. And you just spent a lot of time in the in the NGO and development community around USAID. So thrilled to have you here to talk about this topic. We had a story uh, this week, and maybe David, you can just take us into it, a story for our pro members that really kind of flips the script a little bit where we asked community groups, you know, the, the people that are sort of the target of localization, we asked them, what do they think of what USAID is trying to do around these locally led indicators? Tell us a bit about what that story found, David. This goes back to last year. USAID, um, well, it goes back a couple of years when USAID set itself two main targets. One was that 25% of its funding would go to uh, local organizations uh, by 2025. And the other one was that half of its programs would be locally led by the end of the decade. Now, they, they took quite a while to work out what locally led really meant. Uh, they spent a long time. They spoke to more than 300 community leaders. They did a lot of consultation. And they came up with 14 indicators that they said, all of which might indicate that the program was locally led. And if uh, the program ticked any two of those boxes, in the opinion of the USAID staff who were um, kind of overseeing the program, then it might count as locally led. That came out last year. Uh, there's been some discussion about it. And we went and we talked to um, my colleague, Alyssa Mialine, went and talked to a number of community leaders and said to them, what do you think of this? Is this strong enough? Does this really fit in with what you're kind of expecting? Do you, do you, does this do what you need? And they gave a very mixed reaction. Some of them were really happy at the fact that USAID had been so thoughtful, so um, engaged in consultation. But others said, well, yeah, this has been a, a great piece of concerts of work but we haven't really seen that much change yet we haven't really seen this actually practically make any difference and kind of we'll believe it where we see it and uh cautiously optimistic 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 and skeptical that was kind of where they fell yeah i mean nicole you know what it's like inside usaid as well as other similar agencies you know i guess i kind of wonder how realistic is it to think that by now, I mean, it has been about three years, but that by now you would see real practical movement on the ground when it comes to, you know, sending more money directly to locally led initiatives and local organizations. What's your, what's your feeling about this kind of the implementation realities of this? 
Yeah, thanks, Raj. I, I mean, I found, you know, the story really interesting. Localization is one of these, a little bit of what's old is new again, in the sense that, you know, it's something that in some shape or form has been around for some time, right? It's 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 been always an effort to partner and, and have more cooperation. I think, you know, fair to say, um, this recent push has, has arguably had more teeth behind it and has been um, a stronger commitment and the efforts around, you know, coming up with the indicator, setting the best practices and figuring out a way to really measure that progress um, is is notable and, and laudable to many. But I think, you know, you're right. It's it does take time. I mean, as I said, we've this general effort is not necessarily new. And I think there is probably an impatience uh, for results. Um, both, you know, within the agency and within the communities um, that, you know, we seek to, you know, seek to serve and, and, and partner with. So, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised um, to hear of the, you know, reluctance to sort of praise too much yet. Um, but also, I do think that these, these efforts and, and what we're seeing and the goals and commitment are, are a good sign and are sort of stronger. Um, and there is sort of money and effort, you know, to, to see what's behind. I mean, I, I do think, you know, another piece I'll just, you know, mention for now, and we can dig into a little bit more is, you know, the, the funding target um, is one thing, but I think it's looking, I think the broader conceptualization of what locally led means beyond just putting the financial resources into the hands of local organizations is is something notable and that's also i think a part of this this puzzle and you know it, it, on the one hand the the money might be easier to the, to track but i think it's those other pieces that might be harder to track but also take a little bit longer to really um take root yeah they kind of get into what localization you know really means because the fear around this, and as you say, it's not new. This has been tried many times in many administrations. The fear is that it gets kind of taken over by the lawyers and accountants. And, right. you know, and if yeah. people figure out how to like technically comply, how to, how to incorporate, you know, overseas and get the board to be just right in terms of the mix of local nationals versus international people and, and kind of meet these kind of very technical requirements to say, look, we're local. And I think with this, measure seeks to do is say, well, actually, there's something a little bit more qualitative here. And we're going to retain a little authority here at USAID to decide, you know, qualitatively, does this thing really feel local or not? We've got a bunch of indicators to do that. Of course, even those indicators are relatively easy. I mean, you could find plenty of ways that you could check those boxes, and maybe still not have something that's quite as transformative as what a lot of the proponents, including people inside USAID, you know, want to see. So it, it's a, it is a challenging set of issues. Um, I don't know, Dave, you covered this quite a bit. What's your what's your take on it? I think USAID is really trying to get to the heart of the matter here, which is that it doesn't matter as much about the postcode of the organization that delivers it, zip code, I guess I should say, I'm talking to American audience, um, as how it how they decided what it was that actually got done. And USAID is saying, what we want to do here is we want to go out and talk to the communities and say, what do you want? What do you need? What's most important to you? And how do you want that delivered 
to you. And that's problematic, actually, for USA. They, they don't have that much time and that much resource to kind of do this kind of scoping work on every single project. It seems kind of ridiculous that an organization that has billions and billions of dollars of, of resources, the, lar- the largest bilateral donor in the world, doesn't necessarily have the resource to do it. But USAID, in terms of its own staffing resource, is quite stretched. And they've struggled to kind of, when they're designing a project, to, to do it in a co-creation fashion, to go and talk to local leaders, say, what do you need here? How are we going to do it? And they're attempting to flip this script, which I think is really admirable that they're trying to make that happen. And I think they are right that this is more important than the funding target. If you deliver the funding to local organizations, but they're still basically just doing what USAID has told them to do and and meeting USAID's kind of goals, then it still isn't a complete success in terms of development because it's still people from the global south doing what people from the global north told them to do. It's a totally fair point. I mean, really, when a lot of the proponents talk about this, this is why language is so important. In other words, localization and decolonization are sometimes used interchangeably, but I think also sometimes people use them specifically because they want to suggest this more transformative shift that you just pointed to, David, which is the idea that the the problems of the global south get defined in a conference room in Washington, D.C., and then the solution gets written up in that same conference room. And then an RFP goes out and says, look, we'll hire maybe a local group to go and execute on the thing we decided needs to be done. And that's not really the spirit, I think, of what a lot of campaigners for a really new way of doing development are calling for. Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organisations like the World Bank, USAID or the Gates Foundation? Then you need to be reading DevX Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com slash pro. an opinion article this week that I would just point our listeners to, and maybe we can get into some of these arguments as well, by Amitabh Behar, who uh, is with Oxfam, and wrote a piece called How to Get from Rhetoric to Reality in Decolonizing Development. And I think he and, and Oxfam certainly are embracing this much more transformative idea behind this set of principles. You know, it's not, they definitely don't want this to just be a bunch of checkboxes, or a top-down program that's now made a little bit more local, you know, top-down design, but still implemented locally, as you say, David. What was, Nicole, did you have a chance to see Amitabh's piece? And I'm curious what your take is on it. I, I, I did have a chance to see it. I mean, I did want to also just come back to to something um, that I think was a, a, a thread, if not necessarily maybe even as explicitly when Amitabh's piece, um, but, you know, picking up on, on some things that you both said, is, you know, when we talk about locally led, again, getting beyond just the financing to, you know, the broader co-creation, which, you know, we're also seeing, I don't want to call it a burden, but the, um, we can maybe dare call it an opportunity. And that is, 
in in we're seeing it in many ways being passed on and through the the implementers and so agree it really does need to be much more from you know conception and design um the sort of you know what we might call the sort of development objectives right and the sort of overall strategy before we even get into it at the level of the project and i think that speaks a little bit you know to what you were saying david but you know, one of the other things I want to bring into this, and it's sort of reflected in, in Amitabh's piece, is the other issue, I think, of the the locally led is, one, the kind of who's, the vali- who's validating, right, some of these qualitative indicators, right? It gets back to, Raj, what you were saying is sort of who's the validator and who's saying that we're actually meeting these objectives, um, but also the. Well, I can just quickly stop yeah, here and please. say, yeah, and say that we did interview uh, Sarah Rose. Michael Igo did our our colleague here at DevX three or four months ago now, and asked that very question. Yeah. And the answer was, you know, they are not expecting USAID is not expecting implementing partners to to provide any reporting or any data or fill out any indicator form. This is something purely that the USAID staff are responsible for the project, they will make a determination. So this is really being held on to by USAID, and it's at least at this point, not designed to create some reporting burden or some right. system that people can try to game. But by that very point, I mean, it goes back to kind of what David was saying is, actually, shouldn't it be the people on the ground that validate, right? Like that they're saying, yes, this is true. We feel, you know, that, you know, take any one of these that we were um, you know, part of a partner in the design process, right? The, the whole idea is that the validators, whether they're USG or an implementer, are not necessarily the people, right? That are that we're seeking to to include, right? Right to to ensure that that's where that's. So I mean, that's yeah, kind of what I was what I'm saying. And yeah. I think you're getting to a pretty fundamental point here, and, and just a fundamental reality, which is, <laughs> in the end, this is taxpayer money implemented yeah. through a you know. A U.S. government procurement agency. I mean, that's the key, the kind of the central element of what USAID actually is. And as a procurement agency, they need to have control and responsibility over those procurements. And and I think that's in a way the thing you keep you know bumping up against. And so here here are some really well-meaning people inside the agency trying to optimize for a top-down reality. But it's hard to see a way to get out of that top-down reality. You know, it's hard to imagine going all the way to the point where the U.S. government is just giving authority, budget authority, design authority completely over to local groups, at least not more than at the margins. You know, I can imagine initiatives that do this that are relatively small scale and therefore able to take larger risks. But to do this with the bulk of U.S. foreign assistance dollars seems unlikely to me. And I think these, you know, you might call them tweaks, I guess, if you're if you're not being that charitable, because people inside the agency probably see them as pretty fundamental changes, but but these changes, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize them, they're not as fundamental as what somebody like Amitabh is certainly calling for. David, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I was going to say that really jumped out to me, Nicole, when I was looking at this piece as, as well. That if you have an indicator that's measuring whether a program is locally led, but local people have no way of feeding back whether they think that they actually led the program or not, they're not allowed to kind of give it any marks or say this was successful or unsuccessful it's it seems ironic that whether a program is locally led or not is being decided in washington 
surely it should be decided in Africa or in Asia whether a program is being led in Africa or Asia. I mean, I think technically just to defend the agency a little bit, I'm trying to imagine what they would say if they're on the call. They'd say, no, it is going to be decided in Africa or Asia, but just by our people, you know, our people <laughs> and our mission, but not necessarily in Washington. Just, I mean, maybe it's a minor tweak, but it's important, I think, to make that point. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that the point would still stand there. They would say, but hang on a sec. We want local communities to to decide whether this is locally led or not. Although another point that was made to us in the process of, of producing this article was that it's actually who decides who the local community are, who decides who the gatekeeper is locally as well. That's actually exactly where I was going, if, if I may, Raj. I, I think that's one of the other pieces of it. And this goes beyond the kind of USAID conversation as well, right? It's something, you know, we see in broader donor and, and development circles, which is who is who is right the right kind of local actor for any given situation or who is the representative? And I think that's where the the kind of localization and inclusion and diversity conversations come together. I mean, this is something that, you know, comes up um, in, in the youth, you know, in, in the youth work, um, in the youth sector quite a bit, because if we want to talk about, you know, youth engagement and youth participation in youth programming or programming that affects youth, um, it's also about, you know, who is that? Who are those young people? Are they representative? And how does that coincide with the localization agenda. So, you know, could not agree more that that's, that's a part of this conversation that I feel like we, we just haven't had as much of, although I think we're starting to. Two thoughts that come to mind on this. One is, yeah, I think often, you know, well-meaning people in the development space in the global north kind of romanticize the global south. And so it's really easy to say, well, we're just going to make the money go locally and then everything works. And of course, once you start thinking about specific contexts in specific countries, you often might say, well, you know, what counts as local? There's the same kind of elite capture that happens in the global south as often happens in the global north. And it might be, you know, very wealthy or very well polit politically well-connected people who are running the most prominent NGOs or have the most access and therefore are getting money, but are, you know, check, they count as local. But it really isn't the transformative change that people are looking for. And my other point, somewhat related, is just when I talk to people in the kind of cash evangelist movement, if they were listening into this, I just know what they would say because I've had these conversations. They would roll their eyes and say, why are you getting yourself so tied in knots over what counts as local, how to deliver <laughs> this? Like, why not just give them cash? And it kind of, it sort of prove, continues to prove their point, which is, you know, the simplest approach uh, might be the easiest and best approach in a case like this, and that is to actually release the funds, you know, to the individuals, not even to organizations, but to the actual individuals who need it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it, but it does come back to something we, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, which is, is, you know, is localization or should maybe it's, is should localization, is it only about, or should only be about the money and the funding? And, you know, I, I would argue it, it's become about, and I'm, not arguing. I, I, it's it's become a much broader conversation. I mean, we talk about inclusive economic growth, which is the space I tend to you know sort of play in. And you know, you've heard me say before, you know, inclusive growth often starts with inclusive governance or inclusive sort of voice, right? And that's from the top on down. And so I think these the the 
elements, I don't want to, you know, go too far away from what it means in localization as far as data or is, which I know you also look at, or as far as, like I said, just the voice, the design, the participation, the other aspects beyond the money itself. It's not to say the money isn't key because it is. Um, but I think, you know, that would be, you know, a question that I would put to, to our friends in the, in the just give cash converse, you know, side of the house. Yeah, I think just going back to Amitabh's piece, um, he, he makes a couple of interesting points. One is he he lays out the idea that that some large NGOs like Oxfam and, and ActionAid have actually moved their headquarters to the global south. And I think his point is, look, if we could just start to, and he talks then about decolonizing money, we just start getting more of the funds overall spent in the global south. You know, even if it's going to the headquarters in Nairobi of some big international NGO, at least it's in the global south is being spent there. Like, can we start moving more and more of this operation there versus the reality, which is there's a big ecosystem of, you know, nice office buildings around USAID here in Washington, D.C. The same thing in, in London, where you are, David, the same thing in, you know, in the Bonn and Frankfurt and Berlin areas in Germany. Like this, this idea that there's a lot of the money actually staying in the global north. And could we just start to move some of that to the global south, even if it's imperfect? You know, even if it's not going straight to the to the person who ultimately needs it, but you're at least getting it spent there locally, you know that I think is at least part of what Amitabh is pointing to. Go ahead, David. Uh, just you reminded me of something that uh, um, was said to me right when I started working at DevEx by uh, just as I was kind of researching the development sector, and and he said, yeah, these people are moving their their offices to the to the global south and we spoke to other NGOs and they said why aren't you following them and they said we thought financially it would be a disaster because we need to be in Washington we need to be in London because the most important thing for us to get money is to be able to walk down the road to where the the offices of the the uh, major funders are and to know what's going on there and so it's more important to us to be close to our funders offices than to be close to the work that we're doing and that's why we haven't moved our offices. And that struck me as kind of a real problem that would need to be overcome in the development sector before we really succeeded with localization. Yeah, and it, look, it might be just a practical reality, but I wonder, couldn't you just keep your business development team, you know, a few executives, maybe a couple of technical leaders in Washington so that they can you know, have that relationship down the road, but, but move more and more of your technical experts to the global south, to where the work is happening, and as well as a lot of back office functions. And Amitabh talks a little bit about this too in this piece I keep referring to. You know, he talks about, you know, if you're in the global south, you're often expected to collect data, to share experiences, to do case studies, but then all of that knowledge gets sucked up, hoovered up, you know, and sent back to the global north, to HQ, where they then take it and turn it into you know, knowledge and theories and, and new policy ideas. And it's sort of like a extractive industry in a way. And so I think your point, David, is a good one. I've heard it too. I think part of it also relates to just the way USAID and other um, international development agencies fund and, and the kind of overhead reimbursement that they do that might incentivize organizations to, to spend a lot of money on their home office, you know, back in DC or London or what have you. So it could be there too, but I just, I think there's a chance if you could move more of those technical staff and many NGOs are doing this and have, have done it to quite a large degree, but the more you can get 
proximate to where the work is, even if it's, you know, town of Africa is a big place. If you're sitting in Nairobi, okay, you're at least a little closer and maybe you're feeling that you're creating a little bit more of a hub in a region that's, that's more relevant. I don't know. What, what's your take on this, Nicole? You just came out of, you know, a, a major USAID implementing partner. What, what are some of the sort of conversations you've heard on, on this topic? Thanks. I, I'm reflecting on, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling going back to my improv days and it, to me, it's, it's, it's a yes and, right? Which is to say, um, for those of you that sort of know that, it's this idea that yes, you can and should kind of move money, move more of the technical expertise, have the operations on the ground, but then it's that and part, right? It's the does that then mean if there's more money in the Global South, with it should come more cooperation, more voice, more influence, and more kind of power, if you will, in the overall kind of structure um, and function of, of development? I think that's, that to me, I, I think is a question and, you know, have been in implementers. And yes, the goal is, right, you have... A, a mostly dominant um, national, you know, local um, national staff to the extent possible, um, but also, you know, coming often coming up against the requirements of the funder. Um, and so, you know, making sure you're sort of optimizing local capacity, local partners, local staff, but also building that capacity and that, you know, through the program and through your, through your partnerships um, and through your, you know, your sub-granting. And I think that, you know, all of that is a big, is a big piece of it. And yes, that can come from having more robust operations and a bigger footprint on the ground. Um, but I, I do kind of come back to, the kind of bigger picture of how do we make that translate and, you know, what else needs to happen, that yes and part to really be transformative, to really kind of, you know, shift the power. Um, and I think it starts, you know, at the macro levels, but also translates down to the micro levels. And maybe we're not doing as much um, at both and, and in between um, to have that real transformation. But yeah, the money is important. The operational footprint is important, but I don't, I don't know that that's enough. The other piece that could be important is the kind of modality of how you're spending the money. Absolutely. And I've, heard, I've heard this argument made, especially from a lot of social enterprise leaders who say, we're kind of missing the point by focusing so much on localization. And essentially you're taking this old fashioned model of contracts and grants, and you're just trying to localize it. And what, what some of these leaders argue to me is, hey, we should actually focus more on payment for results. And if we can get into the payment for results framework, if that's the way we're funding, well, the most effective way to achieve results, probably the most cost-effective way to achieve results is to be more and more local, right? That you can, money goes much further when you have it locally spent. And if you're asking a local community, hey, why is it that graduation rates aren't good or literacy rates aren't good? or farmers' yields aren't where they should be, they probably have a better idea why that is than you do. And they can probably design a better solution and it's probably gonna be a lot cheaper. So, you know, at least the argument that's made in theory is if you can move more and more to payment for results, you will naturally, as a byproduct, get more and more local engagement and leadership. And that in instead of that, what we're trying to do here is take an old fashioned system and just modernize it a bit. And that's 
that's not actually going to get this transformative change that people are looking for. Maybe maybe just a last thought on this, David, and then I want to see if there are any other stories that, that you want our listeners to be aware of from this week. You were talking about Yes and Nicole, and it really struck me that kind of, in the end, money and power follow one another. And if the money and power are at a local level, then we'll get what we need. And fundamentally, if, if the people at the local level are deciding what gets done and they're deciding how the money is spent, whether that's payment by results or another system, if they're deciding how the work is delivered and what work is delivered and the work is being delivered by local entities, then we're there. So it's a number of steps. I think it's kind of everything all at once, right? There's, there's 20 things that need to change in order to successfully do this, and we have to continually try to do all of them at the same time. And you were asking about other stories that, that people might want to be aware of. One thing that uh, we've got coming up that I think hasn't quite been published yet or is just on the um, just about to come is looking at the evidence for localization and whether we can show not just that localization works, and there hasn't been that much research to show that. In some cases, it's an article of faith. But how it works best, what the most successful ways of localizing are. And there's a real push. There's an interesting piece about measuring how, how, how we measure the effectiveness of localization going forward so that we can, rather than just all telling each other this is the right thing to do, we can show that this is the right thing to do. Go ahead, Nicole. We're just getting close to wrapping up. But give us your final thoughts. No, just a, just a very quick pickup on that. I would say, you know, really interested to see um, the the evidence of localization. But I think one aspect of this conversation also is the localization of evidence building, right? And I think you know, there's been conversations around kind of the localization of evaluation, monitoring, and evidence building. And I think that's you know another kind of piece of it that it sort of both sides of the coin. Well, just so listeners are aware of some other stories we have this week, you know, there's a, a piece that uh, our colleague at Voss Eldinger wrote about the Senate finally approving $10 billion in emergency humanitarian aid funding. Now, don't get your hopes up that this means that funding is actually forthcoming. Uh, it is one important step in the process. If you've been following the drama on the U.S. Capitol, it's all about, you know, funding for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, uh, the border and trying to do a border deal. And a piece of this, kind of an asterisk that doesn't get as much attention in the mainstream, but has been important, is including in all of this some humanitarian funding. And uh, the good news for people in the humanitarian community is it was included and approved by the Senate, but it faces very dim prospects in the House. We just don't know what's going to happen to it at this point. So stay tuned for, for more. But if you want to know a bit about what is in that humanitarian funding bill that came out of the Senate, take a look at, at Vaz piece. Uh, any other stories, uh, David, that you want to point our, our readers' attention to? Keep an eye out for one other piece that we've we've got coming, which is uh, a bit of an argument over uh, overhead rates at USAID. That will be an interesting piece, which is, is coming out in the next day or two. And I was particularly struck, um, this isn't maybe the most important story, but a really interesting one, uh, a piece about how um, India, NGOs in India are working with faith leaders this week to try and persuade people in their communities to um, to to engage with uh, health best practice. And it struck me as a really 
interesting example of uh, trying to do things a little bit differently. That jumped out at me. All right, fantastic. Well, lots, lots of reading to be done. If you haven't seen those pieces, please check them out. And of course, if you want to know all of the stories we're publishing here at DevX, all you got to do is subscribe to the Newswire, which is our free daily newsletter uh, read by a couple of hundred thousand people like you, uh, development practitioners and leaders all around the world. We appreciate your subscription to that. And we appreciate all of you tuning in and listening in. Nicole Golden, Dave Aidsworth, and for me, Raj Kumar, thank you so much. This has been another episode of This Week in Global Development. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.